Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. In moments, Margaret Corvid will talk about Britain in the run-up to the June election, and Amre Ungun examines Turkey's evolution into into a more authoritarian state in the wake of a referendum giving enhanced powers to President Recep Erdogan. First, the British election. Last month, British Prime Minister Theresa May, thinking the Labour Party was in fatal disarray over internal divisions over its radical leader Jeremy Corbyn, called a snap election for June 8th. She's gambling that her Conservative Party would win big as it faces the challenges of negotiating Britain's exit from the EU, on which the EU is taking a very hard line, by the way. My first guest, Margaret Corvett, is a writer, a Labour Party activist, and a professional dominatrix, originally from the U.S., who is now living in Plymouth, a small city in southwest England. Her work can be found in the New Statesman, among other outlets. Margaret Corvett. Let's just talk uh, some about the uh, upcoming British election. Uh, What do you think the prospects are for Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party? It's definitely an uphill slog for the Labour Party. Uh, There are indeed a lot of people on the doors who don't like Jeremy Corbyn, um, but we have uh, closed the gap by 10 points uh, since the uh, election started. And we're continuing to catch up. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Corbyn is facing an awful lot of opposition from within his own party, not to mention the conservatives. Who are these people and what do they have against him? Just a little bit of of history in the situation. Uh, Corbyn got in in 2015 um, and there was immediately a lot of opposition from the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, That opposition is not unitary. Uh, While some people will call the whole bunch of them, quote unquote, Blairites, uh, they're actually not. There are some, a very small group of people who identify with kind of neoliberal uh, viewpoints uh, espoused by Tony Blair, but there are also sort of soft left and centrist uh, opponents of Jeremy Corbyn. Some people don't like him simply because they think he's never going to be electable, which is a bit of circular reasoning. And some people don't like him for ideological reasons. And those are, if they're not Blairites, what uh, what is the non-Blairite critique of his uh, ideology? Well, there are a whole bunch of them. I mean, there are even people on the left who are quite critical of Jeremy Corbyn because they think that he is identified too much with, for instance, Assadism or something like that. <laughs> well, let's pause there. What What's he done to earn that, uh, that denunciation? Merely, uh, he used to be um, the uh, convener, I believe, not sure the exact title, of the Stop the War Coalition. And a lot of people think that the Stop the War Coalition and other groups have been Assad apologists, you know, have not been strongly opposed to him enough for for the atrocities that that have been committed by his regime. Um, But a lot of this is indeed association. Uh, What kind of association? Jeremy Corbyn has been critical of uh, the Assad regime. He has also been critical of attacks on Syria, you know, you know about the uh, reasoning for those attacks. And people will just criticize him for association. You know, I think he appeared on press TV once, which is a link to Iran, uh, you know, stuff like that. And he also gets uh, tagged as an anti-Semite from time to time, doesn't he? Yeah, he does get tagged as that, even though he organized a very strong campaign of investigation against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And and they found there really wasn't that much anti-Semitism going on in the Labour Party. But um, Jeremy Corbyn's long been a strong supporter of Palestine solidarity and stuff like that. And uh, unfortunately, there is a conflation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. There's basically been an organized campaign of pro-Zionists within the Labour Party to kind of marginalize these viewpoints. So even like five years ago, it was a whole lot easier to call yourself uh, an anti-Zionist than it is now. Uh, It's very dangerous to do so now. People like Jackie Walker, who was a prominent uh, activist in the Labour Party and within Momentum, the pro-Jeremy uh, Corbyn pressure group, uh, basically got suspended from the Labour Party for her, her anti-Zionist work. And uh, it's really ironic that that's happened because she is actually uh, Jewish in her own uh, origins. She's a part Jewish and part uh, black 
woman um and she's she's been demonized in this way but but yeah people kind of throw all kinds of things at jeremy they say that he's like a sympathizer with ira terrorists uh when all he tried to do is actually work to negotiate peace um and most of the criticisms of corbin are kind of in the same vein these are all very familiar uh, smears. I think an American would not find these unusual to hear these kinds of smears thrown at uh, someone on the left. It's pretty standard issue. I've been on the left for a long time, and these are all arguments that I've heard bouncing back and forth in the United States and the United Kingdom. But we have kind of the advent of social media and and the phenomenon of virality. So when you have these accusations going on now, they are instantly magnified to a national or an international scale. And that's kind of what I think is happening here. And other critiques, aside from his being um, an anti-Semite and an Assadist, uh, what else uh, do the non-Blairites have against him? Generally, there's a lot of local concerns. For instance, here in in Plymouth, uh, where I live, which is in the southwest of the UK, this is a strong uh, defense city. We have a huge defense dockyard that refits and repairs uh, nuclear submarines. And so Corbyn uh, has been a longtime um, opponent of Trident and of nuclear proliferation. You know, he's been involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament and stuff like that. Uh, and so people will get annoyed with him for wanting to shut down defense, uh, you know, because it's a huge economic uh, powerhouse in this region. Um, they'll say he's soft on defense, soft on security. Um, you know, a lot of times people will will have issue with him for his leadership and management style, saying that he doesn't know how to to get his policies out. He doesn't know how to handle the media uh, and stuff like that. And these have been critiques that have been leveled against him from all sides over the last year and a half. Uh, of course, uh, I would counter that by saying that Jeremy Corbyn has not had the help of the kind of permanent political class. You know, the the politicos, the fixers, the, the publicists, the people who have relationships with the media, the people know, who know how to work, uh, the Parliamentary Labor Party, you know, these people generally, they will work with whoever the leader of the Labour Party is. But since uh, Jeremy got into office, they've been fighting him the whole time. And, and, and then they kind of point their fingers and go, look, he's incompetent. Uh, I kind of would, would raise an eyebrow at that and, and a bit of skepticism. And to an American, it's uh, surprising to learn uh, that the Labour Party really is a, a membership organization and the members actually vote for the leadership. Uh, could you talk about the organization of the Labour Party and uh, how Corbyn came to be its leader? Basically, I, I think it was in the Miliband leadership. I could be wrong on this, but um, there was a, a rule passed that would make sure that the uh, leader of the Labour Party was elected primarily by the members. And that was kind of done to weaken the control of the trade union voting bloc on the election of the labor leader. But, um, you know, with the advent of the social media phenomenon, the virality and whatever that I was talking about earlier, that kind of came up to bite them on the butt because uh, what you had was when Jeremy was putting his name in to be nominated, there was a huge social media push to try to get the requisite number of MPs to endorse his nomination to get him on the official ballot. And once he was on the official ballot, um, hundreds of thousands of people basically voted for him. And huge numbers of people joined the Labour Party in order to vote for him and in order to support him. So um, the Labour Party, which has always been a membership organization, swelled to over 500,000 members. Um, and that's what we have today. Um, structurally, our membership is organized in branches and constituency labor parties, which is based on the electoral boundaries. And it is our branches and our constituency labor parties that can come up with policy, that can come up with motions, that elect delegates to conference, which set our policy. Um, it's certainly not pure direct democracy, but it's a hell of a lot better than, you know, say uh, the Democratic Party, which it's a very different structure. I, I can think of some bad diseases that are better than the Democratic Party. Uh, Quite. What what drove that enthusiasm for Corbyn? I mean, he's not, at least from this distance, a particularly charismatic figure. What drove uh, that enthusiasm? 
he has become kind of a, a popular icon. There's like little woodcut pictures of him all over the place. There are Jeremy Corbyn coloring books and all that. But he is not a Bernie Sanders. He is not a bombastic, gifted orator or anything like that. I think what people are really attracted to with Jeremy are his policies and, and his politics and the fact that he is kind of the anti-politician. He is a guy who's been a constituency MP for several decades. He's an excellent constituency MP. He's teetotal. He rides a bicycle to work. He has a cat named Pat and he has a garden allotment. And this is like not what you think of when you think of a high flying politician. So kind of the support for him, it's kind of a left wing strand of the populism that's been going on all over, you know, the Western world, you know, so it's, it's disillusionment with the, the ordinary status quo of politics. What is his agenda? What's he running on? The agenda of Corbynism is basically a return to the initial original values of the Labour Party. Um, people kind of contrast it superficially with Blairism because they identify Blairism with this neoliberal tradition where there's a lot of privatization. There's a lot of moving away from strong trade unions, strong workplaces, things like that. What Jeremy is looking for is a return to that kind of tradition, taking NHS back from the privatization, the semi-marketization that has gone on with it in the last few decades. That is basically selling bits of it off to the highest bidder, reinvesting in that, reinvesting in frontline services, uh, you know, moving away from uh, a United States orientated uh, foreign policy towards peace, multilateralism non-proliferation, an openness, a welcome to, to, to refugees, you know, a support of freedom of movement, but, but with strong, you know, increase in workers' protections and stuff like that. It's basically old school socialism for the 21st century. And, you know, far from seeing him as a dusty has-been, people find these ideas very fresh and relevant. And that's why he has the support he has within the party. Whether that's going to happen outside the party at the ballot box is another question because we're fighting an uphill battle against uh, mainstream media that have historically been very critical of him. You know, any mistake that he or his shadow cabinet makes is amplified, you know, way more than the mistakes that are made in the Tories. Uh, the Tories have had a disastrous initial bunch of stuff with Brexit, as you'll have seen, you know, their meetings with Brexit negotiators from Europe have been absolutely disastrous. They've been unprepared. They don't know how the relationship with Brussels work. But um, Diane Abbott, you know, the, the shadow justice minister from Labour, fluffs a question on costing for increase in policing. And that makes national news, whereas this Brexit fiasco on the side of the Tories is, is just a footnote. So when we go to the doorstep, people are very skeptical of Corbyn, you know, people who are not Labour members, they're historic Labour voters, uh, but they're very skeptical of Corbyn. But a lot of that is because of this, this media bias. And, you know, right now, a whole bunch of awesome policies are coming out from Labour, and we really need the press to focus on those policies and to contrast them with, with what the Tories are doing. I'm speaking with Margaret Corbett, a writer and Labour Party activist. Well, let's talk some about the, what the Tories have been doing. What's, what's Britain like after all these years of, uh, of uh, David Cameron and now Theresa May? More and more people are using food banks than ever before. People are getting denied their disability claims and, and being said they have the ability to work and they're committing suicide because they can't. Homelessness is on the increase. Uh, poverty is on the increase. Uncertainty is on the increase. People are working harder. They're working longer hours than ever before, but with much less certainty. Uh, workplace protections are being devastated. It really stinks. It, it really, really stinks. And it's being, you know, the national sentiment. A lot of the, the fear and uncertainty is being whipped up into anti-immigration sentiment. You know, this is where we got the Brexit vote. Our foreign aid budget is like 0.1% or half a percent of the national outlay um, for, for our spending. But Daily Express and Daily Mail articles about streams of refugees coming in through Calais managed to get 
people to vote leave, to vote to leave the European Union based on, well, what do they call it in the States? Fake news, all facts, that kind of thing. So you really have this isolation, xenophobia, worry going on. Hate crimes are on the increase. Uh, like a week after the Brexit vote here in Plymouth, there is a Polish guy uh, in town. He runs a local computer shop and his garden shed got burnt down. And there was a death threat note posted uh, through his letterbox, you know, threatening him and his family. So, yeah, that's what's going on here. Yeah, I was about to ask you about what post-Brexit uh, Britain feels like. Is it just uh, a wash in xenophobia and paranoia? It's a wash in xenophobia and paranoia, but it's also, there's a lot of resistance going on. There's a lot of struggle going on. Here in the Southwest, uh, you don't necessarily see so much of it, but there's a whole lot of opposition to that sort of thing. Donald Trump is being planned to come through here in the autumn and supposed to get like a ride in the Queen's golden carriage down the mall. And, you know, that's going to be the biggest protest that we've seen in a very long time. Um, you know, there, there is kind of this national attitude of uncertainty and xenophobia, but it is definitely not going uncontested or unchallenged. And uh, you're an activist in uh, uh, around Plymouth, uh, and Plymouth, it should be said, is not a, a metropolitan center. You're an activist as both an open socialist and an open sex worker. What are those things like? Uh, first, let's talk about the open socialist. Is that okay with uh, your fellow Labor Party uh, members in, in Plymouth? Uh, yeah, it is. Basically, when I was in the United States, uh, my political beliefs were definitely on the edge. Um, they're not part of the mainstream. But the Labor Party is um, a broad uh, church or, you know, broad tent, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, the party ranges from soft liberals to social democrats all the way out to explicit socialists like myself. It is a democratic socialist party. So, you know, I'm in the Labour Party because I'm working on this democratic model. I'm I'm trying to win socialism through the ballot box. That's what I'm trying to do. And so people are quite open to that. Um, there is a lot of hostility and tension within the Labour Party about pro-Corbyn and anti-Corbyn folks. But when you get to the business of campaigning, the business of knocking on doors, getting out the labor vote, uh, reaching out to voters, there is a lot of unity, you know, going on. So you see people from all these different camps working out together on the doorstep. Uh, as In terms of being a sex worker, uh, people have also been pretty welcoming of that. It's a legal job here. It's legal for me to work as long as I'm working independently and not working with other sex workers. That's perfectly legal for me to do, although there's still a huge amount of stigma. Uh, my sex work is professional domination, so it's a highly uh, privileged form of sex work. But, you know, I walked into the Labour Party, I was a little apprehensive and nervous about how people would receive me, but nobody has had a problem, or if they have had a problem, they haven't had the chutzpah to come and say it to my face. I was quite surprised at my warm reception. What about your socialist comrades? Do uh, they find uh, your activism in the Labour Party questionable? I've been involved in various socialist groupings and organizations since I've been in the UK and beforehand. And I think that some people raise their eyebrows at me being in the Labour Party or any of us being in the Labour Party. But there is kind of a broad consensus that supporting the Corbynist project is something worth doing. So nobody has come up to me like, oh, Margaret, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore because you've joined the Labour Party. Uh, nobody's done anything like that. Um, it's definitely an issue where comrades can disagree and debate. And what about uh, other sex workers? Do they find your political engagement curious or something uh, sympathetic? The thing is with sex workers is the reason I'm able to engage as an out sex worker is because I'm very, very privileged. There's a lot of sex workers who are doing survival sex work, um, who are working and they're undocumented, who have other issues. They have to stay in the closet. They can't be public about it the way I am. And they cannot engage as an open sex worker in politics necessarily. So 
I get a lot of support, you know, from my friends for what I do. But I also understand that that's not, you know, getting sex workers involved in politics is not necessarily the priority for most sex workers. Uh, Our priority as a movement for sex worker rights is the full uh, decriminalization of sex work. And that will help the most marginalized sex workers the most, Uh, you know, people who are migrating, people who are undocumented, people of color, trans people, trans women, uh, people who are disabled in various ways. These are the people who are most likely to benefit from the full decriminalization of sex work. Um, And I campaign on that as well. But, you know, I think that it's good for people like myself to be involved and for people to get involved in other parties and to support policies of uh, within those parties to uh, advocate for sex worker rights because sex work has often been hidden it's often been underground and one of the things I'm saying is that as sex workers you know we are business people as well we are members of the community we have a right to participate in public life Uh, and so that's kind of a an undercurrent uh, to the activist work that I do as a sex worker. I also know sex workers who are active in the Liberal Democrats, in the Greens and stuff like that. And, um, you know, some parties, the Liberal Democrats included, are explicitly adopting policies advocating decriminalization. And, you know, labor hasn't done that yet, but that's definitely something that I am pushing for. And what about the, you do get tut-tuts from the, uh, the Guardian-style liberal feminists who think that sex work is scandalous and degrading? Uh, I definitely get tut-tuts from those feminists. There are, there are people in the Labor Party and out with it that are, you know, what I would call carceral feminists. Um, you know, that's a, a phrase that's been used by people like Laura Augustine and Melissa Gira Grant. Um, they are basically feminists that say, you know, sex work is degrading to women. Sex work is you know, an offense against women everywhere and sex workers are traitors to feminism and they're willing to use all of the might and muscle of the state to promulgate their moral perspective. Whereas, you know, I'm a socialist. I think that those ladies, um, those second wave feminists, carceral feminists have a right to their views. But, you know, I don't think that the state is often a tool of social progress in in any way. And if you're going to instantiate your feminism through raided brothels and deportations, I don't think that's feminism at all. All So finally, um, what what are you looking forward to in the uh, weeks ahead of the election? What can we expect? I am actually very delighted about how uh, the progress is going with the election against all odds. You know, we are improving in the polls. I expect that increase to continue. I expect the Labor Party to close a lot of those gaps as people stop scratching their heads about Jeremy Corbyn and start looking at our great policies, you know, funding free school meals for every child by adding value-added tax to payments for independent schools, which is what they call private schools. That's a great policy. Uh, You know, lots of other amazing policies that are coming out, rolling back all of the hospital cuts. That was one that came out recently. Um, And, you know, there's a really great communications campaign going out from labor. The press are finally starting to listen and pick up some of those policy-led discussions. And, And the more those national messages get out to the voters, the better we'll do in the polls. And, and we definitely have a chance to, to hold some seats and maybe even win a few. Um, you know, I'm not going to get all of my hopes up, but I'm going to be out on the doors, working the phones, working in the hall alongside my other uh, Labor Party volunteers to get Jeremy Corbyn into 10 Downing Street. That was Margaret Corvid, a writer and Labour Party activist based in Plymouth, England. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason and revolt now thunders. And at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstition Servile masses arise, arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition We'll spun the dust to win the prize ah, So comrades, come rally And the last fight let us face 
The Internationale unites the human race. As our comrades come rally and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. A little late for May Day, but better late than never. That was some of the Internationale, sung by Alistair Hewlett. Next, Turkey. Since 2003, Turkey has been under the leadership of Recep Erdogan, who came into office as something of a moderate Islamist and who has moved in an ever more authoritarian direction over the years. Last July, a coup was mounted by a faction within the army in probable cahoots with an exiled cleric, Fethullah Gulen. Gulen was once Erdogan's political ally, but they had a falling out, and Gulen now lives in exile in Pennsylvania, where he, among other things, runs a network of charter schools across the U.S., Here's Emery Ongun, a political scientist and activist, originally from Turkey but now based in France, to tell us more. After this referendum, what are Erdogan's powers like now? Is he essentially a dictator? Today, every aspect of the new constitution is not implemented yet. There are some aspects that has to be implemented for the next years, uh, including uh, the election and the new institutional frame which will be implemented in uh, 2019 uh, when there will be the next parliamentary and presidential elections together. But indeed, uh, he has already gained some say, more institutional leverage uh, on the judiciary branch, on the right to design the administration. There was already an authoritarian situation before the referendum that was here particularly since uh, the failed coup attempt in July last year. Before that, there was already uh, an anti-democratic situation. But since this failed coup, it became worse, authoritarian. And now we can say that we have an evolution uh, toward dictatorship. The vote in the referendum was quite close, right? Uh, So what do you conclude about uh, Erdogan's popularity among the Turkish population? We must say one thing. Erdogan lost the referendum. The yes uh, had the majority only through fraud. We have to be extremely clear about that. And this is the first time that he, Erdogan, need to cheat to win uh, an election or a referendum. Before uh, this referendum, uh, for different elections and so on, there was repression in the society during the campaign, before the campaign, uh, people arrested, uh, unequal use of the medias, and so on. But the day of the vote, Erdogan won the elections and the referendums. This time, there was a huge repression before the vote, the, the weeks and the months before the vote. Uh, many people arrested. A dozen MPs were in jail. The co-presidents of the HDP, the uh, People's Democratic Party, were in jail. Many mayors in Kurdistan were in jail, and uh, they lost their position as mayors. This was a very unequal and anti-democratic campaign. And despite that, he needed fraud to have this narrow majority of 51%. Erdogan is losing ground in Turkey. He lost in the three major cities of the country. He lost in Istanbul, he lost in Ankara, and he lost in Izmir. This is very important especially for the first two ones, Istanbul and Ankara, because it's the first time that um, Erdogan or his party lose the vote in these two cities since 94. And why is that like that? It's because in those cities, there are many uh, organizations, still opposition organization and these networks, and it is uneasy to fraud. In fact, the fraud that allowed uh, Erdogan to win this referendum was mainly done in, uh, in Kurdistan, where there are areas which are controlled by the army or by pro-government militias. What is driving this move towards authoritarianism? Is it his own personal ambition or are there larger political forces also pushing it? I think basically we have to frame it in, as uh, social class relations. There is a very interesting uh, lecture, uh, lecture and analysis by uh, fellow uh, friend and comrade Socialist economist Ismet Akja, who has been, who lost his job, by the way, because of his involvement, the political involvement. And he describes how 
when Erdogan came to power, it was 15 years ago. In fact, he was able to build a large spectrum alliance in the in the different sectors of the bourgeoisie. He did this by pressuring uh, the working class and the working class rights. In fact, he did this because he was very friendly toward the IMF, privatizations and uh, restructuring uh, of the economy on a neoliberal basis. So it pleased the big bourgeoisie in Turkey, integrated in financial capitalism. But in the same time, he also was able to pressure the working class to take this, uh, the, the social rights back and uh, to pressure the, the wages. So it was okay for little entrepreneurs who had uh, little corporations. So he could bring together these different sectors. And he was able to have, therefore, uh, liberal politics in political arena too. That was the honeymoon. But what came after is the 2008 crisis. Because with the 2008 crisis, uh, Turkey uh, has been uh, very impacted by this crisis as it is an economy based on exportation. After this crisis, AKP began to lose some ground and therefore chooses to focus on its basis, on its core basis, which are the conservative Turkish bosses, uh, entrepreneurs. And therefore, it became a narrow alliance and he, he became to get more and more authoritarian inside and more and more adventurous on the international field, particularly in Syria. How has Turkey been involved in Syria in recent years? In many ways, because the involvement of uh, Erdogan in Syria is uh, the involvement of capitals, basically. He, he was not uh, guided by any democratic value whatsoever, despite everything he says. Erdogan tried to play many games in the same time in Syria. The first one was to overthrow Assad to make uh, Syria uh, its back garden for the Turkish capitalists to be there, to have their uh, ambition to participate to the rebuilding of the country after, uh, after the revolution. That was one of his aims. The second aim was to crush the Kurdish movement, the Kurdish organizations in Syria who, who are connected with the Kurdish uh, national movement in Turkey, which is not the case of all the Kurdish organizations in Syria. And especially when those Kurdish organizations created uh, the Rojava, the autonomous uh, area government in northern Syria. About this issue, Erdogan was extremely clear. He said, we will not allow that there is a Kurdish state or, or state-like or any, anything like that in our southern border, which is Syria. And we are ready to anything uh, to avoid that. And when he said anything, it was really anything. So therefore, the Turkish regime was extremely easy, let's say, uh, or even helpful, not only for the Syrian free army, but also with forces like um, Daesh. It is not anymore the case, but at some point, uh, the, the Turkish border was very easy for people who wanted to join Daesh or who wanted weapons that Daesh needed uh, were going through the Turkish border. Daesh, of course, is what uh, Americans are probably more likely to know as ISIS or ISIL. What was Turkey's interest in uh, assisting ISIL or Daesh? First, it was considered as, uh, for the Turkish regime, as a helpful more against the Kurds than Assad, in fact. And the other thing is that the pro-ISIS groups in Turkey were used as a weapon against the democratic opposition in Turkey. Uh, what happened is that in 2015 and, and last year is that even in Turkey, those groups were used. They organized bombings, they organized suicide attacks against meetings of the democratic opposition, of the left, uh, of the common meetings of left organization, democratic organization, Kurdish organization, to terrorize the opposition. In fact, there was different scales. Repression by the state itself, by the army, particularly in Kurdistan, terror by Turkish fascist groups, and when needed, 
there were suicide uh, bombs by pro-ISIS groups in Turkey that the state just let them do whatever they want and attack these meetings. Of course, the U.S. had allied, at least to some degree, with uh, the uh, Kurdish forces in Syria. Uh, what did uh, that do to U.S.-Turkish relations? There must be some uh, increased tensions over uh, the U.S. support of uh, a group that uh, the Turkish government hates dramatically. Completely. In fact, um, at one point, uh, the Turkish government was quite isolated on the, uh, on the international field because of what you said. And, and those relations have been, in fact, very uh, difficult at some point. But Erdogan is a very pragmatic and he's not very principled man. At one point, he just gave up one of his two uh, aims in Syria, the aim of immediate overthrow of uh, al-Assad. He just gave it, gave it up, saying that, yeah, there can be transition with al-Assad and so on. And he focused on the Kurdish issue. And then he, he get closer uh, with the Russian government, uh, with who the relations were very cold, but they warmed very easily. Uh, he's trying to warm, again, his relations with Russia, but also with the USA. The, the relations which have been very difficult are becoming more and more easier with the Trump administration. Yes, that was my next question. I would think that uh, Donald Trump's uh, accession to office has uh, been welcomed uh, by uh, Erdogan and his government. Trump congratulated him on the victory in the referendum. Um, so is this some kind of authoritarian internationalist developing among these guys? We can is somehow, yes, but I don't think that's the major aspect or the driving force of uh, this relation. But uh, you're right to, to acknowledge that uh, Trump was quite positive with Erdogan after the referendum. But Erdogan presents himself not only as a Turkish leader, but also a Muslim leader. He presents himself as the man who, uh, who defends the rights of the Muslims, who is not afraid by Western powers, and so on and so on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, how has uh, Erdogan been using Islam uh, in domestic politics? That's a major aspect of his policy. In fact, Erdogan uses Islam as like what is called uh, in Turkey the Turkish Muslim synthesis, which is an extreme right thesis, uh, which says that Turkey is a Muslim and in fact, when they say, when it says like that, it means more Sunni than Muslim. It's a Sunni country, it's a Turkish country, which means by this way, not Kurdish. And that's the core of the, the nation. That's something very important in his policies, uh, presenting all his uh, opponents, or most of them at least, as atheist, communist, drug addict. All these things are the same uh, in his discourse, basically. And uh, also toys of foreign Christian Western powers, all of them. It's very important on the national field, but also it is important on the international field to have some kind of uh, legitimacy to present himself not only as a Turkish leader, but as a Muslim leader. And this is very interesting that the Turkish government didn't say anything at all when Trump wanted to implement the Muslim ban. This so-called uh, Muslim global leader and so on didn't say a word. In fact, he congratulated Trump after his election and had a very uh, positive approach and has a very positive approach to his administration. Why? Because he is expecting uh, some kind of return uh, in Syria against the Kurds. For the major ideology, in fact, driving Erdogan, despite his Muslim and so on discourse, is the Turkish nationalism. I'm Sugat Emre Ongun, a Turkish political scientist and activist based in France. The use of Islam is a, quite a departure for a country that has long been very resolutely secular. Uh, what, what's the reaction uh, of, of the forces that have promoted secularism been to uh, this uh, religious turn? For me, that's a myth that Turkey was, has a tradition of secularism, which, which is a very common myth. In fact, Turkey has, since a long time, the, Tur the different Turkish governments promote this Muslim identity. Uh, we must remember that particularly this Turkish Muslim synthesis is promoted 
after the military coup of 1980, and in fact, this, this uh, focus on religion and the political use of religion has been highly promoted by the army, which is something that people many often forget. That's not what we hear in the United States. You know, we always hear that the, the army is the traditional guardian of secularism. Yes, that, that's the reason why I emphasize it. Because the, one of the main supporters of the use of uh, the religious use of Islam has been the army in Turkey in the in 1980s against the left, which was uh, destroyed by the 1980 coup. And before that, there were also politicians that used it, civil politicians and and so on. But even before that, we must say that the Turkish Republic itself, even when it put the principle of secularism in, in, its, in its constitution, was built on a religious basis. The first act, even before the birth of the Turkish Republic, was the exchange of population uh, with Greece. And it was not on a kind of linguistic or other basis. It was on a religious basis. Uh, Muslims uh, from Greece went were exchanged with Orthodox from Turkey. Even during the one-party uh, one-party era, uh, during uh, under the Mustafa Kemal and then Ismet Inuni rule, there are also things like that. And for example, the we all know that let's say the property tax was based on the religion in uh, 1940. The way that the so-called secularism has been implemented in Turkey is in fact quite different. It is the control of the religious institutions by the state, not the separation of them. Imams are public servants in Turkey, and that's something that, that's something that were already here before Erdogan. What has the relation of the army been to Erdogan as he's increased his power? We can summarize it by saying that Basically, the army has been domesticized. Army now is under the, under the rule of Erdogan. It has been 15 years that Erdogan is in power, and he had the time to purge the army several times. And now the leadership of the army, they owe him their career and their position. There have been, and we have seen it uh, in the uh, failed coup of uh, July uh, 2016, there, are, there have been some sectors who have been hostile to Erdogan, but those are, those are in minority. And what we see now is that the army is not anymore an independent political force. The government blamed uh, that coup of last year on uh, the Gulen movement. Uh, what's up with them? Uh, in fact, Gulen movement, maybe we should say one or two words about them. Gulen movement are, uh, are former allies and very good allies of Erdogan. They are from the same background. Gülen movement, uh, which was founded by Fethullah Gülen, which, who is a preacher, uh, who lives in USA, in Sailorsburg, if I'm not wrong, in Pennsylvania. He didn't build a political organization, but he built a network uh, of uh, people involved in the business, in the administration, in the justice administration, in the, in the tribunals and police and so on, uh, with a network of schools, quite good schools. And by the way, he, he used the privatization of the Turkish education system to promote his own private schools. And therefore, he had this big network, and which was quite strong in the state. And when Erdogan came to power, he needed allies in the state people who were involved, bureaucrats who knew how to make uh, the state work. And Gülen was there. And they are from, as I say, the same network, which is a conservative, uh, religious, strongly anti-left, pro-business network. So they worked together many years, and they, and particularly Gülen was efficient by making trials against many opponents of Erdogan. And many trials were completely unfair and uh, fake trials who brought people to jail. What happened is simply that they couldn't share economic spoils uh, that uh, the, their position in the state gave them. They couldn't share the revenues of the private schools of the Gulen network. That's basically this. That's a fight between two common, similar uh, political forces sharing the same values. But 
Julian thought that his network would be strong enough at least to have a deal with Erdogan. But Erdogan is not this type of political leader. If he sees that he can win, he will try to destroy. So that's what he did with the Fethullah Gulen movement. He basically destroyed his economical network and his network in the state. That's basically this. Uh, what happened um, during this coup is that, in fact, uh, we can make only some hypothesis based on some facts, but we don't have the details of this. what happened. It's impossible. But there I will follow the hypothesis of one of the best uh, journalists of Turkey and one of the specialists of the Fethullah Gülen movement, who is Ahmed Şük, and who is in jail now because of his work. And his thesis is that uh, the coup, the attempted coup, is it was planned by Gülenists in the army who knew that they will be put out the army a few weeks after, allied with some other sectors of the army who were not Gülenists, were, but who were not comfortable with uh, Erdogan's rule. Some of them coming from maybe a more, let's say, so-called secularist, so-called Kemalist background, some of them. But what happened, according to him, is that before that the coup was, was done, there, the, the government uh, was aware of it and they negotiated with some sectors of, uh, who were involved in this coup, particularly the non-Gulenist one. Uh, those ones were the only ones to, to act and they, and they felt themselves alone to try to make the coup. And so they were unsuccessful and uh, and it was they were easily defeated and they have been repressed and i think that's quite realistic because when you look at the coup when you look at the forces involved military forces involved in the coup they are extremely weak there are only few thousands of soldiers and even most of these soldiers were not aware of what they were doing there were some officers telling them, you got to go there, you got to block this bridge and so on. But they didn't even know that they were making a coup. So, And you cannot uh, realistically think that you can make a coup in a country like Turkey with a few thousand militaries and two or three uh, F-16. Where do you see this going? Is the country going to go deeper into authoritarian rule? Unfortunately, yes. It's really going down, in, in fact, in every aspect. We are here talking about the political aspect, and yes, there is a more and more authoritarian evolution. There are uh, fascist under, uh, undertones of this evolution. And I don't use the, the term fascist, let's say, in an easy way. For a long time, and that's something very leftist or ultra-leftist, in Turkey, the term fascist was used for almost anything. And I think personally that it was wrong. But here we face such a possible evolution. Why? Because of first of what I say, Erdogan knows that, in fact, he lost the election, that he is losing ground and that his basis is still a massive basis. It's not the majority anymore. It's the half of the country, but not the majority. And in the same time, he needs to crush the Kurdish national movement. Erdogan recognizes that there are Kurds and they live in Turkey, but he refused to recognize anymore any peace process. So he needs to destroy the Kurdish movement. But the Kurdish movement is here and it's a massive uh, movement that embraces, let's say, two thirds of the Kurdish population in Turkey. And most of the Kurds in Turkey do not live in Kurdistan anymore. They live in what we call the, in Western cities, what we call in, in Istanbul, in Ankara, Izmir, and so on. So if you want to break them, you, don't, you need more than the army controlling the Kurdistan. You need also fascist terror in the Western cities. And it already began. There have been pogroms in late uh, 2015 and so on uh, against Kurds, civilians, industries. And he needs more and more and more of this. I must say one other thing. It's that the economy is, is falling apart because the state and the economy are falling apart. The, the Turkey is facing, uh, in fact, a rampant economic crisis. 
And in the same time, there have been uh, 150,000 people who have been expelled from the public service since July uh, 2016. Can you imagine that? 150,000 uh, people. That's a, by the way, that's a very harsh austerity policy. Despite whatever the neoliberals say, those people worked, they did stuff, and they make the state work and so on, and they are not here anymore. And all this is, in fact, is falling apart. That's a run that will end badly. That will end at that point, but badly. That was Emery Ungun, a Turk now living in France, active with the ensemble movement there. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit from the finale of Haydn's Symphony No. 82, The Bear, performed by the New York Philharmonic under Leonard Bernstein. 